Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with, spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and did not necessarily represent those of AMC Networks and its employees. This case went wrong in so many ways from the get-go. It almost could be called a comedy of errors, except that there's nothing funny about it. All the way from an incompetent defense attorney to a judge who arguably should have recused himself from the case Mm -hmm. to very questionable physical evidence Mm -hmm. to a star witness, Elizabeth Hasem, with severe credibility problems. Mm -hmm. There were just so many red flags. For decades, for decades, I thought Basically, right, the full thing was an honest mistake on the police and the prosecution's part. I thought that they were just wrong. You know, people make mistakes, right? Right. And there was no ill will, there's no intent, okay? Mm -hmm. And then in 2012, I remember I picked up my legal mail and I was talking to a female administrator here that I halfway trusted outside the watch office and I just started crying because you know up until that time I blamed myself you know I thought I lied to the cops they believed me so it's really my fault I'm here right but now I realized that they knew I wasn't telling the truth this was not an honest mistake on their part They did this to me knowingly and intentionally. Yeah. You know, and that was the first time I really felt, and I don't like feeling this. I don't like feeling this. I hate this. But I felt like a victim. I felt like somebody did something to me. Welcome back to The Truth About True Crime. I'm Amanda Knox. This season, I'm deep diving into the Sundance Now docuseries Killing for Love. It's a case that hauntingly echoes my own. The brutal knife killing, the young lovers as suspects, the flawed forensics, the international media spectacle. But the parallels run even deeper, for at the heart of this story is a wrongful conviction, which means that there are two crimes to explore here. The first is the double homicide of Derek and Nancy Hasem. 
The second is the ongoing wrongful imprisonment of Yen Suring by the state of Virginia. Last episode, we looked at Yen's himself as the first quote-unquote suspect in this crime, for he wouldn't be where he is now if he hadn't falsely confessed to killing the Haysoms in a misguided act of altruism to save his girlfriend Elizabeth from the electric chair. But it takes more than a false confession to lock away an innocent man. As Yen says, somebody did something to him. This episode, we're looking into another suspect in the crime of Yen's 33-year wrongful imprisonment. The investigators, prosecutor, judge, media, and citizens of Bedford County. When Jens initially confessed, what he said didn't correspond with the evidence at the crime scene. The investigators should have followed up on those discrepancies. Ricky Gardner, the sheriff's deputy, suffered from confirmation bias, mm-hmm. meaning that he went into those interrogations with a preconceived idea of what happened, i.e. that Jens was the killer, and he was only interested in ferreting out evidence that would confirm that bias. That's journalist Bill Sizemore, who has covered Jens's case extensively. Confirmation bias is a huge problem in wrongful convictions, and investigators Chip Harding and Richard Hudson, who we met in episode one, walked me through all the ways the initial investigators were blinded by their own preconceptions, starting with the rental car, which had exactly enough extra miles on it for a trip to the crime scene and back. Elizabeth claimed she had seen Jens driving back to D.C. in the car, wrapped in a sheet, covered in blood. So they sent Chuck Reed to the rental car place to luminol the car, okay? You know what luminol... Does. Yes, sir. They use that in my case. Okay. Right, right. Well, it, it either does or doesn't. You, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. it didn't fluoresce. Mm-hmm. But they only told, told Chuck to check the driver's seat. They didn't tell him to check the trunk. They didn't tell him to check the passenger compartment or the back seat. And Chuck didn't do it because he, he, he wasn't told to do it. Then there's the D.C. hotel. We cannot understand for the life of us because it's just basic investigative practices, no one went to the hotel for well over a year, year and a half to confirm they stayed there, even though Elizabeth and Jens told them where they stayed. You know the story that Jens tells and the story that Elizabeth tells about the room service at the Key Bridge Marriott? Sure thing. They were at the hotel, um, or at least one of them was at the hotel, and one of them ordered room service. So we know for sure one of them was in Washington, D.C. at the hotel. Yeah. And what happens when you get room service? You pay for it. What else happens? You eat it. <laughs> what else happens? Um... A hotel employee delivers it to you. Shoot, you're right. <laughs> Every time. <laughs> and the hotel employee would have known because you got to sign a ticket. They can't shove it under the door. Right. So there was a hotel employee that saw a man or a woman in that hotel room. They never checked. Wow. It's ridiculous. This was the first misstep. 
the original investigators failed to verify the details of Yen's and Elizabeth's stories, and in particular, the inconsistencies in Yen's confession. But maybe it's understandable that the cops didn't follow up on these elements. They had a confession for the murders, so why go through all the trouble to double-check every little detail? Well, maybe because the investigators had something else, something that pointed away from Yenza's guilt, an FBI profile. So, the you know, a, a, a top FBI profiler said that it had to have been someone she was familiar with, mm-hmm. or she wouldn't have opened the door. That's Jason Flom from The Innocence Project. He's talking about how Nancy Hasem, wearing nothing but her flimsy housecoat, wasn't dressed to receive unfamiliar company. She wouldn't greet a stranger. She was a, you know, sort of a, a socialite, you know, a high society type of woman. She would have maintained some decorum. So we know just off of that, this profiler said that it could not have been Yen because she would not have opened the door for him or for strangers that he may have been with. The profile went beyond specifying someone close to the family. Actually, the FBI, their profile came back as, as a female, too. So that kind of put us on the female end of it. That's Chuck Reed, one of the original detectives. He remembers this profile well, and it makes sense then that one of their first suspects was a woman, the ex fiance of one of Derek's sons, Margaret Louise. Now, I'm not one to put much stock in profiles. They're a lot more subjective than DNA. And it's not obvious to me what about the crime scene screams woman when a large man like Derek Hasem was overpowered in the bloody struggle. What's interesting about this FBI profile is that it mysteriously disappeared. And everyone in Bedford County law enforcement, with the exception of Chuck Reed, denies it ever existed. And it it kind of shocked me because I'm thinking to myself, well, wait a minute, I mean, it happened. And I tried to tell that to Ricky, and uh, it's not only Ricky, but it's some of the others now, a couple of the administrative people who have retired, they seem to be turning a blind eye to it and seem like nobody remembers anything here but me. And here's Chip. We've got the chief deputy saying that there absolutely was not a FBI profile done on this case. The FBI was not called in. They never did an FBI profile. Well, we brought in uh, Stan Lepica's retired FBI agent. Turned out he had a, let me just say, a source, somebody he used to work with, with inside the FBI, and said, would you check this out? And darn it, that source didn't come up with the evidence of teletypes from the from the FBI which specifically said Quantico performed a profile on this case and it's consistent with a female close to the family. So we caught them, or we we caught at least one individual. It's a straight up lie. By that point, the Bedford investigators and prosecution had been suppressing the profile for 27 years. I didn't know about this until 2012. And what I learned was that this crime scene profile had been created one year prior to my interrogation. So when the American policeman, Ricky Gardner, and the American prosecutor, Jim Updike, 
came to England to interrogate me over there, right? Mm-hmm. They had this profile. I'm not female, and I met these people once for about 20 to 30 minutes, mm-hmm. okay? So I did not fit the profile, and Elizabeth did. So when I gave them this false confession, they knew at the time that it was wrong. Mm-hmm. It didn't fit the forensic evidence that they already had, right? Mm-hmm. And and they had this FBI crime scene profile telling them that what I was saying in this false confession was not true. Mm-hmm. And then they took it anyway and they hung me with it. And that is really an evil thing to do. And the fact that they're so adamant about denying the existence of the FBI crime scene profile is, I think, precisely for this reason. They know, you know, what that thing proves, which is that this was not a mistake. This was not one of those, there's some wrongful convictions that are mistakes, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. Everybody's making, trying their best and they just goofed. They just made, made some bad judgment. But this is not one of those wrongful convictions. This is a wrongful conviction with me. This is bad people knowingly doing bad things. FBI profile or not, the investigators were ignoring evidence that didn't fit their preferred narrative, that Jens was guilty. They were ignoring other suspects. First and foremost, Elizabeth. She also confessed technically over there, and they want to come back and say, well, that was no confession. A British detective said, well, you knew Jens was going to the house to kill your parents, didn't you? And she says, well, no, I did it myself. I got off on it. When she made that statement, they told us, no, you're just being funny. They never pursued it. And not just Elizabeth. There were other suspects the investigators ignored. As DNA expert Tom McClintock explained in episode two, when the blood at the crime scene was finally tested for DNA in 2016, it ruled out Jens and left us with two big question marks. The DNA evidence as it stands today is indicating there are two unknown males bleeding in the crime scene. Well, we have two guys that were for years called drifters that we did some research on and found that they weren't drifters. They were actually from the area. They were hitchhiking around like drifters do, who committed a murder within just a few days after the Hasem's murders, and not, not too far away. A guy was stabbed 27, 30 times. Shiflett and Albright were the two guys that committed the, the murder in Roanoke, and they were having conversations about killing somebody somewhere close by. Mm. But Bedford never used that. And Bedford eliminated them as suspects, and Bedford won't talk to us, so we don't know how or why they eliminate. They're doing life sentences, which means we, their DNA would be had been taken in Virginia upon conviction, put in data bank. Would you compare those two profiles to the crime scene? Mm. And our state lab says they can't do it on my request because I'm functioning as a private citizen outside my jurisdiction. And yet Bedford won't ask to do it either. Meanwhile, the truth gets muddled, lost in the wake of the preferred narrative. As Karen Steinberger, the co-director of the Sundance Now docuseries Killing for Love says, 
I don't know who killed the Hasems. What I do know is that he can't be the way they say he did it. It's no way. It Nothing fits to each other. And now with all the new DNA, and now we know there's blood of two other men at the crime scene. So why isn't anybody trying to explain that? Why is the state not trying to find out whose blood is that? I mean, we are not talking only about Jens maybe in prison totally wrongly, but we are talking about the real murders running free. Hmm. You know, who are these two men? (laughs) This, I mean, just the blood of the two men is, is so hilariously wrong. If you see the... Yeah, you see that Jens Turing is imprisoned as the sole murderer of the Hasems. Mm-hmm. That's that's a verdict. One person killed the Hasems. Jens Turing. Hmm. hmm. Very strange. Just doesn't doesn't fit. So if they are so sure, why don't they go into it and, you know, make some research, prove it. Proving it is not just the job of the investigators, but also the prosecutor. I reached out to the prosecutor in this case, Jim Updike, who is now a judge, but he declined to comment. Back in 1990, Updike wasn't going to trial empty-handed. He had the rental car miles, the flight to Europe, Elizabeth's diaries and letters, Jens's confession, and type O blood at the crime scene. Updike also had Jens Suring defending himself on the stand, and he took full advantage of Jens's inexperience and naivete during cross-examination. Looking back at those scenes uh, from the trial, I, I, w- I remember that time as being that, that I was just absolutely terrified, just scared to death. And uh, I just got more and more arrogant the more scared I got, the more arrogant I got. And um, it's, I just really, I really regret that. I have my own similar regrets from my first trial. The all you need is love t-shirt. The fact that the very first statement I made was to clarify a point about the condoms and vibrator I stored in my bathroom. But I also have to cut myself some slack. It is stunningly surreal to be on trial for a crime you didn't commit. And in that courtroom, there really isn't a right way to behave when you're under the microscope in the worst possible light. My attitude didn't play well in Perugia, and Jens's attitude didn't play well in small-town Bedford. I mean, he was so insecure. He was so nerdy, his big glasses. People hated him in there. Mm. They hated him in Virginia. You could feel, you know, there's a, um, and everybody who was there keeps on telling us, you know, there was a very anti-Yens sentiment in the whole room and in the whole Virginia area. There was a particular point in the trial where the prosecutor, Jim Updike, he was running circles around me. He was really good. And he made me look really stupid. And, um, I couldn't defend myself because I was so scared. And uh, he said at one point that I was claiming that my confession was false and I was lying back then. Well, couldn't I equally well be lying now? And uh, and I said, well, 
that would be logical, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and that was just, that was me. That was me back then, you know? It sounds like data. <laughs> a, yeah, right. You know, it, it's basically sort of a, a mixture of data or, or, or Sheldon Cooper, you know? It's just like, but that's not appropriate to the situation. And it wasn't particularly helpful <laughs> when you're trying to defend yourself against double murder charge. It's insecurity. It's in, you could tell it's not a smile. It's total disbelief, um, horror, don't collapse, you know, trying to look strong. You don't want to break down in the, you know, it was filmed. He knew everybody was watching. Everybody wanted him in there. With the sentiment in the room and Jens's foreignness and arrogance on full display, it was easy for Updike to vilify him on the stand. It was a winning strategy, and it's hard to fault a prosecutor for wanting to win. But Updike had a problem. The best material evidence he had was the type O blood, which matched Jens, and 45% of the population. It wasn't enough. Updike needed material evidence that singled out Jens, and he settled on a bloody sock print. The only thing I can say is I just think things were, were, were rushed hmm. in order to, get, to try to get a conviction. As I said earlier, you know, when you're in the field of ponies, don't look for a unicorn. And I think that smear sock print was a unicorn for them. And that's what they tried to, to use. Hmm. Uh, you know, you, you, you can't get, basically you can't go and look for something that's not there. Mm -hmm. And that's, to me, that's what they were looking for in that sock print. They're looking for something that wasn't there. When they were looking at the, the sock print impression in blood and the shoe print impressions, there were experts that were saying that it was consistent with a woman's six and a half to seven and a half or men's five to six. And there actually was, from our state lab expert that, that rendered that uh, report, well, when it goes to court, uh, it doesn't fit what the prosecutor wants. So the prosecutor brings in a non-expert an FBI, former FBI tire impression expert by the name of Robert Halet. And Halet does what the invest myself and the investigators call a magic trick. He has a photograph of Yenz's uh, ink footprint impression and does an overlay that makes it look like it's a match. In the words of the prosecutor, they fit like a glove. This is an elegant piece of prosecutorial sleight of hand. Updike dismissed the report from his original forensic expert, then brought in a retired FBI expert who basically says, I'm not an expert in footprints. I'm an expert in tire prints, but I'm an expert, so trust me. He then overlays Jens's footprint with an image of the sock print and says more or less, I'm not saying it's Jens's footprint, you decide for yourself, dear jurors. And this tactic proved to be crucial. One of the jurors was interviewed after the trial uh, in the media and said that the, the jury was deadlocked six to six, but when, uh, they, when they considered the bloody shot sock print evidence, uh, that put them over the top. Hmm. That's, what, that's what convinced them to convict Jens Zaring. Um, 
in point of fact, that evidence has been shown to be completely bogus. Um, it's it's junk science. Hmm. Um, it would it would never be allowed in, in court today. My prosecutor tried to use junk science to convict me too, and my defense attorneys, they fought back. They hired experts to hold the prosecution's experts accountable. But even with that proper defense, I was wrongly convicted. Jens had it even worse. The big problem was Jens' defense, as I said earlier, which he really had no defense. Uh, No experts were brought in for rebuttal. In court, Elizabeth is saying different things when she's in her court case and different things when she's in Jens' court case. Mm. Nobody, nobody says, stop, hello, <laughs> there's something wrong here. Why do you say this last time and that this time? She's telling the people in court that she cleaned the car full of blood with Coca-Cola. <laughs> no question, no question in the courtroom. Not by Jens's lawyer either. Hmm. And then you see all these little things where you say, Jesus Christ, where is his lawyer? Inadequate defense counsel is one of the major causes of wrongful convictions. But Jens having an incompetent attorney is not the fault of Bedford County. The question is, when facing a weak opponent, did they play fair? Or did the prosecutor take advantage of the situation to get away with tactics a better defense attorney would have challenged? In this case, it may reach the level of misconduct. It certainly would when you're looking at the cue and sock impressions. Mm -hmm. Uh, The rest of it, I think, is a prosecutor that's doing an excellent job to win his case and not necessarily seek justice with the case. Um, which happens frequently with prosecutors. And then on top of that, there's the fact that the judge in the end of the case was uh, friends from childhood with members of the victim's family. Nancy Hasem's brother went to military school with Judge Sweeney, so there was pretty obvious potential for conflict of interest. In light of that, Jens's attorney filed a pretrial motion for the judge to recuse himself. For two reasons. One, The victim's brother was a close friend of his, and the victims were social friends of his. That's Gail Marshall, Jens' post-conviction attorney. And secondly, before Jens' trial, he gave an interview with a magazine in which basically he said she made him do it. So he had already decided on Jens' guilt. But Judge Sweeney decided unilaterally that there was no conflict of interest. He also chose to disallow the presentation of certain evidence that inculpated Elizabeth, something we'll get into next episode. And by doing so, he influenced the jury. For it's not just law enforcement who contributed to Jens's wrongful imprisonment. They were ultimately answerable to Bedford's citizens. It was the citizens who were charged with interpreting the facts of this case and handing down a verdict. Well, Bedford was, I mean, it's just something like this was basically just unheard of. You have your normal crimes. It was pretty quiet and serene little town, basically. Everybody knew everybody. 
And that's about it. I mean, I do know when this happened, I know the forest area and people in Bedford County was putting a lot of pressure on the sheriff and our uh, prosecutor about solving the case. The authorities in my case felt a similar pressure. Perugia was a small town economically dependent on its tourism and colleges, and the local Perugians looked on my murder trial as a stain on their reputation. They pushed hard for a resolution, any resolution, that closed the case and absolved the city of blame. Whether we liked it or not, Jens and I both stood out from the crowd. In Perugia, I was the blonde American girl, immature and unfiltered. At UVA, Jens and Elizabeth were distinctly un-American. Elizabeth spoke with a British accent from her years growing up in English boarding schools. Jens, whose father worked for the German consulate, was a global citizen by a very young age. It was one of the things that drew Elizabeth and Jens together. The fact that they couldn't relate to the many Virginians around them who had never ventured past the borders of the U.S., much less their home state or hometown. And while Elizabeth was aloof and bohemian, Jens was elitist and German in a county that saw the highest per capita casualties at the hands of the German army in World War II. He was a fish out of water. He, was, uh, he had nothing in common with that community uh, except that he was uh, madly in love, obsessively in love, uh, with Elizabeth Hazen. <laughs> Bedford was obsessively in love with her, too? Well, <laughs> <laughs> her mother had very deep roots in the community. Uh, she came from an old, old Virginia family and was very well known in the community because of her family roots. When it came down to choosing who to believe, Jens or Elizabeth, Sandy Houseman, a reporter for Virginia Public Radio, put it to me this way. In your heart of hearts, do you want to believe that the young lady who lives down the street, who's the daughter of a very reputable, wealthy couple in town, do you want to believe that she would kill her parents? That is very disturbing. It's much easier, much more comforting to think that some evil person from a faraway country would do it than to think that a nice young lady like Elizabeth, who had every advantage, would actually kill her parents. Sandy is talking about which story people wanted to believe, which story left them reassured. It's something I learned from my own trials. The courtroom is a battleground of storytelling, where the most compelling story, and not necessarily the most truthful, wins. And in the war for controlling that narrative, Elizabeth fired the first shot when she testified at her 1987 trial. Jens didn't get a chance to respond until he was tried three years later. In all the lead-up to his trial, uh, Jens was still in England mm -hmm. fighting extradition. Mm -hmm. So he wasn't here mm. in Virginia to make his case to the media, and, and his, uh, nor were his lawyers. He was um, effectively voiceless. That's exactly right, until the day his trial began, really. Mm -hmm. Um, nobody knew anything about uh, this guy. All they knew was that he was uh, this foreigner who stood accused of this 
very brutal murder of two very prominent people in that community. That was the atmosphere Jens walked into when England finally extradited him back to the U.S. And by that time, the narrative presented by the prosecutor and Elizabeth, who pled guilty to accessory to murder, had been amplified by the media. There was so much negative press coverage that Jens's attorney asked for a change of venue. Judge Sweeney responded with a weak concession, drawing the jury pool from Nelson County, which was right next door and exposed to the exact same media as Bedford County. By the time the jurors were walking up the courthouse steps for Jens's trial, there were people hawking a book about the case, Beyond Reason by Ken Englade. You know, there was a book sold at the court by the time when the court was running. I mean, there was not yet um, a conviction. And they um, there was a book sold um, saying how Jens killed the Hasems. For a closer look at Jens Sering's case, check out the six-part docuseries, Killing for Love, on Sundance Now. Download the app or visit SundanceNow.com and enter promo code TRUTH to sign up for a free 14-day trial. The media was steering jurors towards finding Jens guilty before the opening gavel, and their influence persisted during the trial. It was an absolutely insane spectacle. Jens's trial was covered gavel to gavel on cable TV. Everybody in that part of Virginia was glued to their television watching Uh, this incredible saga play out. I think cameras in the courtroom are, uh, at least on paper, (laughs) a good thing. Mm -hmm. But I also see that there is the chance of various pitfalls. You know, you you have the risk of the attorneys playing to the cameras, perhaps witnesses as well, perhaps the judge. So... Pretty much every element of Bedford County was stacked against Jens. It was the same with me and Raffaele. Most Perusians had written us off as Foxy Noxy and Mr. Nobody. But one thing I could count on that Jens couldn't. Raffaele and I were both innocent, and we fought to prove our innocence together. Jens wasn't only facing a biased courtroom and prosecution. He was up against the worst possible enemy, the one person in the whole world he'd ever loved, who was now betraying him. At the mercy of the court, Elizabeth found an even better counterpart than Jens, Jim Updike, the prosecutor. In this case, the prosecutor was quoted in an interview. He said, on one hand, she, Elizabeth, freely admitted that her parents wouldn't be dead if not for her, she wanted them dead. On the other hand, she was great assistance to me. Updike said that Hasem helped him gather the evidence against Soren and even outline the whole case for him. If you know anything about the legal system in America, prosecutors do sometimes go to parole hearings, but always to speak against the prisoner mm-hmm. seeking parole. In 1995, the prosecutor, Jim Updike, went to Elizabeth's parole hearing and spoke for her. And there's a newspaper article about this published in the Richmond Times-Dispatch where he says that she helped him organize the case against me 
and then he even uses phrases to describe her like that she was very charming. Okay, so somehow she actually managed to wrap, you know, the prosecutor around her finger. What did Elizabeth offer in exchange for this hope of early parole? She had cut a deal with the prosecutor to testify against me in exchange for his support at her parole hearing in 1995. When it all comes down to it, Bedford County enabled Elizabeth and amplified her version of events, despite the many red flags. Jens calls this bad people doing bad things. I'd say there's at least a fair argument to be made that poor judgment and cognitive bias helped lead Bedford County to convict an innocent man. But with Elizabeth, it's different. Of all the suspects in the crime of Jens Suring's wrongful imprisonment, she's the most mysterious, and her role is the most intentional. It was the state, it was the police that abused their power over me by denying me my right to a lawyer. And what they got out of that was a false confession. And um, that's where I see the responsibility. What I blame Elizabeth for is four years later at my trial, Mm -hmm. when she was already safe and they couldn't do anything further to her, Mm -hmm. right? That she didn't then tell the truth, that she didn't have the decency and honor to tell the truth. Yeah. I do blame her for that. Yeah. I mean, worst breakup ever. (laughs) It's a meme. (laughs) Hashtag, worst breakup ever. (laughs) Um, But in all... (laughs) I mean... Hey, make a t-shirt out of this. We've got to get t-shirts. Jens laughs. But that relationship, that breakup, and what caused it, it's anything but funny. Next time, on The Truth About True Crime, we'll pry open the black box that is Elizabeth Hasem. In the meantime, be sure to check out the Sundance Now docuseries, Killing for Love, at SundanceNow.com. And please subscribe, rate, review, and share The Truth About True Crime.